0: Good morning, Rivertree. How was everyone's week? Good. I I like how I'm still asking those questions, even though I can't actually hear any responses from them. Force of habit, I guess, but still good to ask. I still want to hear. Maybe put in the comments how your week was and all that fun stuff. So, alright, but I have to ask, what is going on with the weather here? Today it's supposed to get up to almost 80. I had... Fully made the turn into fall-winter. You know, I busted out long-sleeve shirts, you can see. I got my cold-weather running gear out. I I bought a new hoodie. Like, food-wise, I'd gone full crock-pot mode, making tasty stews and chilies, and none of that really works when it's 80 degrees out. So I'm, I'm a little unsure what to do. I might have to go down and just into the storage bin and pull out a pair of shorts for this next little bit. But I know come January I'll probably missing days like this, so I should probably stop complaining about it, but I don't know. All right, That's, that's enough complaining for me, I guess. Okay, so this week we are continuing our series where we answer some of your questions, and last week we talked a little bit about death and the lengths of our lives and all of that. And to start out with this week, I wanted to address a question that was kind of along those same lines that we didn't have time to get to last week. And that question was, what happens when we die? Do we go to heaven right away, or do we have to wait until Jesus comes? Now, this question, like last week's, is one in which there is really no clear and precise direct passage that answers this question in a simple way. Which is probably why we have so many questions revolving around death, right? I mean, I would love to be able to point you to a, you know, concise biblical passage that was basically the handbook for the recently deceased from *Beetlejuice*, right, that spelled out exactly what was going to happen. I would absolutely love that, but, but there's not. So once again, we are left to try to form an understanding of this question from contextual clues and through interpretation. So just like last week, I am going to give you how I understand and answer this question. I am by no means the authority on this topic at all. There are lots of great scholars and lots of great Christians who would read these texts differently than me, and that is 100% okay. I think how you answer a question like this shouldn't make or break your faith, right? This is a question that shouldn't sway or change how you feel about God or Jesus or our relationships with each other. But we as human beings are just notoriously curious. So I think it's natural that we want to seek out and answer big questions like this. I think it's fun. So let's, let's kind of dive in. So how would I answer the question, what happens to us when we die? Well, what drives my answer, maybe more than anything, is the analogy that the Bible uses for death. In over 50 places, the Bible compares death to sleep. Now this association between death and sleep is so pervasive that it's still with us today even if we don't fully realize it. Our English word cemetery is derived from a Greek word which means place where you sleep, which itself comes from a Greek verb koimen which means to sleep or to put to sleep. So it's this idea of sleep and death is kind of something that is still with us. Now think about the last time you had a just good, restful, hard night's sleep. What did that feel like? I don't know, for me, I'm not a great sleeper. I don't know if that's a weird way to phrase it. I have insomnia a lot, so like I, I, I don't sleep through the night a ton. But last week, I actually did once. So I wasn't feeling very well at the beginning of last week, so I took some NyQuil. It was like 6pm. And I don't know if... I'm the only one, or like how you react to NyQuil, but for me, NyQuil puts me out hard. So for me, my night was I took NyQuil, laid down to start a movie, and my alarm went off at 5 30 in the morning, almost 12 hours later. Now for me, that alarm went off like a minute after I took the NyQuil. Didn't feel like almost 12 hours. For me, those 12 hours went by in an absolute instant. And I think this is how death will be for us. I think it'll be like sleeping, really in every sense. When we die, then seemingly the next second, we will wake up in glory with Jesus in the second coming. Now, there are some scriptural passages that I think point to this point, uh, in addition to the sleep metaphor. So if you have your Bibles with me with with you, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Now, I feel like Ecclesiastes gets a bad rap a lot because it, it can be super depressing on the surface. But I think if you dig into it, and this is actually one of my favorite books, that if you dig into it more, there's actually a lot of hope and promise in it. And who knows, one day we might do a full series on it because I, I really, really like this book. But for today, we're just gonna look at this quick passage here. So I'm going to start reading in verse 5. This is Ecclesiastes 9 5. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward and, and even their memory is lost. Their love and their hate and their envy has already perished. Never again will they have any share of all that happens under the sun. So this passage I feel like at its core is getting at the notion of thought, of thinking, of anticipation, thinking forward. The living can think, can think ahead. They know they eventually will die. They, they have the ability to think ahead, to guess, to prognosticate, if you will. And with that, they carry all sorts of emotions, love, hate, envy, everything. But the dead know nothing. Dead have no forward thinking ability, and not. And what's even more, they have no backward thinking ability, because it says memory is lost. Memory is lost to them. And I think this really enforces the sleep analogy. Think about it. When you're asleep, you don't really have memories. You're not carrying anger with you in the moment while you're sleeping. Now, okay, yes, dreams are a whole nother kind of thing that we're not. Doesn't really play into this analogy very well. Um, I feel like me, I never really dream, and I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. Because on the one hand, I don't get cool dreams where, you know, I'm, I'm Batman flying around with Clifford the Big Red Dog, or, you know, something cool like that. But on the other side, I don't really get nightmares, so I'm, I'm going to call that a, a win, I guess. But just put dreams aside. When you are asleep, you you really have nothing. Now, that's not to say you've permanently lost your memories and emotions and all that, right? Because the second you wake up, they're, you're... They're there. But for this liminal moment, when you're asleep, you're blank. With nothing. And I think this really gets at the idea of what it'll be like when we die. We'll be in this similar liminal state. Blank. With nothing, but unaware of time. And I think is something that Jesus touches upon as well. In John 14, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says, starting in verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, what I had, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare that place for you, I will come again, and I will take you myself, so that where I am, you will be also. So here, Jesus is saying that he's going to go away, prepare a place for us, and then come back and take us to this place that he's prepared for us. Now, to me, this makes me think that we're not going to go to this place until Jesus comes again and calls us there. Now, how or what that's going to look like, that's a whole other discussion, a whole other topic that we do not have time to dig into right now. But for me, I read this passage as Jesus saying there's a pace, place being prepared for us. It's not quite ready yet, or we're not quite ready for it yet. So until it's ready, maybe we should go take a nap. And to me, that's a really comforting thought. You know, it reminds me, it's, it's Thanksgiving time, right? I'm wearing my Thanksgiving shirt. One of my favorite kind of Thanksgiving traditions or memories when I was little is, you know, you'd wake up really early, watch the parade. I grew up on the West Coast. We would watch the East Coast feed of the Macy's Parade. So it was crazy early in the morning. So we'd get up, watch the parade, go out and play some football, have a ridiculously sugary breakfast, you know, like cinnamon rolls or something. So that by the time you hit about noon or so, you're crashing hard. Your sugar crash is coming down. You're, you're, you got up early, so you're kind of tired, cranky. You, you, you exercise, played football, so you're coming down from that. But you're also excited for Thanksgiving dinner, right? That, that, that's, the main, that's the main thing of the day. But you're tired. You're kind of exhausted. So my mom would tell me, just go take a nap. And I'll come wake you up when everything's prepared, when everything's ready. So I would do. I would go lay down, take a nap. And before I knew it, mom was calling me to get ready for dinner. So if death is like a pre-Thanksgiving nap, that honestly doesn't sound too bad. That doesn't sound like something I should be afraid of or worried about. And to me, that's that's incredibly comforting to think about it like that. Now, like I said before, there are other passages you could point to that you could easily argue the opposite, but people have, that we go instantly to be with Jesus when we die. The parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Jesus' words to the second thief on the cross are just a couple. Now, I personally don't read those stories as pointing against this death as sleep mentality. I think, they, I think they still work and fit in with this death as sleep. But I wouldn't begrudge or you know hold it against anyone who does read those that way. Because, like I said, this is one that, a question that there's no clear and direct answer for. For time's sake, I'm not going to dive into a lot of those passages, but I don't want you to think that I'm completely ignoring them. So if this is a topic that you especially have questions about, or especially want to keep going with and want to talk about some of these passages with me, please let me know. I would love to talk with you, whether it's via Zoom, we could go find an outdoor coffee place or something, and talk about these, because there are lots of passages that we just don't have time for today. You know, someone could spend their entire career basically trying to answer this question and would still not even come close to being able to do it. So that is how I would answer the question, what happens to us when we die? I compare it to a Thanksgiving nap and we will wake up from that nap with, when Jesus calls us into glory. Let's answer that. Now I think we have time for one more question, and this is a question that I really, really, really liked Um, because it comes from a place of just true innocence, but also gets it really, you could argue, the fundamental question of humanity. Why am I here? So the question was, why did God think to make the universe? That's a big question. And what I think I, I, I wrestled with a lot earlier this week. I, this is a question I hadn't really spent a lot of time sitting and thinking about, but I, I had fun with it. Now there are a number of places in scripture that allude to this, that allude to the purpose of creation, that allude to why this or this was created. Why did God create? And there's a common theme that runs through these places, that runs through these uh, analogies. And I think it's a theme that is most clearly laid out in Isaiah 43. So here, God is addressing the people through Isaiah. And starting in verse 5, I'll start reading. So this is Isaiah 43, starting in verse 5. This is God talking to the people. Don't fear, I am with you. From the east I'll bring your children, from the west I'll gather you. I will say to the north, give them back, and to the south, do not detain them. Bring my sons from afar bring my sons from far away, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, to everyone who is called by my name, and whom I created for my glory, whom I have formed and made. So the overall picture here is God is painting. This idea that, you know, no matter where we are, God will call us. We can't go anywhere where we can be separated from God. That's kind of the main point of it. But look at verse 7. There's an interesting call out there. Whom I created for my glory. So we were created for God's glory. Other places it talks about we were created to glorify God. All right, so what does this mean? What does it mean to glorify God? What is God's glory? Well, I look at this question, and I know others before me have looked at this question in a similar vein. Pointing to God's love as the supreme characteristic of God. So if you remember way, 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 way back in January, which seems like a lifetime ago now, we read through the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John together. And there, in 1 John 4, we read that God is love. So hold on to this aspect of love. This aspect of love, the love of God, is one that medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas really, really focused on when seeking to answer this same question. Why did God create the world? Aquinas started from the base assumption that God is perfect. God is eternal. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. All of that. Meaning that God lacked nothing. Right? Meaning that the creation of the universe, the creation of the world, the creation of us, wasn't done to fill any kind of void because God was perfect. God was not simply bored or lonely, so decided, you know what, I'm going to make a universe today. You know, it, it wasn't like that. Rather, he argues that we were created so that God's love could spread. Now, think about love. Love is a really unique emotion in that it is one of the very few emotions that we naturally, and is healthy for us, to want to share. You can think about it as love being contagious. Although with everything going on, that might not be a great analogy of being contagious. But you know what I mean. Contagious in a very, very good way. Love is something that naturally wants to spread out. It naturally bubbles out of you. it You can very ever rarely say you have too much love or you have too many things in your life that you love or that in turn love you, right? Love is one of these emotions that the more love you have, the more you want to display. And the more it's displayed, the more it grows. It's just this kind of self-fulfilling cycle. It just spirals and spirals and grows and grows. So if God is love, if God is infinite love, then I would agree with this argument, and I would argue that everything was created to spread God's infinite love. That we were created to harbor This love. If that's the case, then we were created not only out of love, ourselves. And I think this is really the ultimate reflection of God's glory that we are loved. And that in turn, we love ourselves and we love each other. So that when we love each other and we love our God, we're taking part in the glory of God. That is us glorifying God. Being loved and loving. So our natural, excuse me, our love is a natural and glory-filled result of God's overflowing, divine, unending love. So my answer to the question, why did God create the universe? Is that the universe, the world, and especially us, we were created simply and expressly to be loved by the glory of God. And to me, that is extraordinarily comforting. Join me as we pray. Lord, we just thank you that you are a God of love. That we were not created out of something lacking from you. That we were not created to fill some void. We were created simply to be loved. And that is amazing, Lord. And we are so humbled and thankful that you are that kind of God. So Lord, as we move forward throughout this week, we ask that that love would just be abundant in us, that we would feel that love everywhere we go. When we get frustrated, when we get angry, when we get whatever, Lord, we just ask that that outpouring of love would just be made real to us, that we could remember and feel that love. And Lord, we just thank you for this time you've given us to come together. And we just ask that you would bring us all safely back next week. In your precious name we pray. Amen.